0: The following presentation was recorded live at the 2015 National Bioneers Conference. To learn more about Bioneers programs and media products, visit www.bioneers.org.
1: Thanks for coming to this session, Curbing Corporate Power for a Just Food System. I'm Joanne Lowe. I'm your moderator. I'm co-director of the Food Chain Workers Alliance, which is a national coalition of unions and worker centers throughout the food system. Um, So we have a great panel of folks for you today. And we're also going to get you all involved in developing a campaign to take on a corporation. So um, so I imagine you're all here because you agree that corporations have too much power over our food system, right? So, for example, I'm sure many of you know or all of you know that just four corporations control 50% of grocery sales in the U.S. Does anyone know the names of these four corporations? On, Sales. These are grocery stores, so.
2: Super Value. No.
1: Walmart. Walmart. Yes, Walmart is number one by big margin. Yes. Costco, Costco is another. Yes. Who else? Yes. Go ahead.
3: Albertsons.
1: Albertsons. Nope.
3: Nope.
1: No. Kroger I heard Kroger yes Kroger there's there's one more it's not safe you You might be surprised it's it's Target yes so um, and just four companies control 80 to 85% of the beef market so that's another example down the um, production chain so in addition to the immense power that individual corporations have Corporations are joined together in numerous industry associations uh, or trade associations that also greatly influence food and labor policies. And so you'll hear more about some of these trade uh, associations today. And so we know, right, that this current food system dominated by corporations is devastating communities, the environment, workers, and producers. And so, for example, according to our research, more than 86% of workers in the food system earn poverty wages. And so food workers face higher levels of food insecurity or the inability to afford enough food to eat than the rest of the uh, workforce. 60% of small farmers make less than $10,000 in gross annual sales. And so our broken food system is in the process of creating an environmental, public health, and agricultural catastrophe. So. That might all seem very depressing, but today you get to hear from three amazing leaders about what they and their organizations are doing to uh, challenge corporate power and instead build a just and sustainable food system. So I want to briefly introduce our three speakers and then um, we'll have our first presenter. So um, to my left here is Nick Geroff. He's Deputy Director of Corporate Accountability International, which leads the national Value the Meal campaign. And this campaign brings together community food justice organizations, health professionals, educators, parents, and investors to provoke major changes in the food industry. Next to Nick is Saru Jayaraman. Uh, Saru is the co-founder and co-director of the Restaurant Opportunity Centers United, or we say Rock United for short. She's also the director of the Food Labor Research Center at the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, In February of 2016, she has a new book coming out called Forked, A New Standard for American Dining. And last but not least is Ben Burkett. Um, Ben is the president of the National Family Farm Coalition. He's also director of the Mississippi Association of Cooperatives and a leader of the Federation of Southern Cooperatives. And the Federation is an umbrella organization of 35 cooperatives representing 12,000 African-American farm families from Texas to North Carolina. And the Federation just won the World Food Sovereignty Prize um, this past week on World Food Day. So, so we were told to make this interactive um, This you know, the session. So before each speaker, I'm going to ask kind of like a quiz bowl question. Whoever gets the answer right gets a little prize. We just got these new um, magnets. Uh, for the Food Chain Workers Alliance, they're union made in the U.S. So, um, so the first one, just raise your hand, and I'll try and pick. Maybe you can help me pick the first person who raises their hand. We'll see who gets it right. Um, okay. So, name one of the two largest distribution companies in the U.S. food system that almost merged with the other largest distributor earlier this year. Who knows? Okay. See a hand up yeah, there. Yes. Sorry. Cisco. Cisco yes. Here you go. Here's your prize. Thank you. The, the other largest distributor is U.S. Foods. So they're about to merge, but that merger was stopped. And Ben's going to talk about how um, these big corporations like U.S. Foods and Cisco uh, impact family farmers like him and you know the underlying problems that corporate control and consolidation of our food system cause for family farmers. So yeah, Ben's going to step down there. Thanks, Ben.
2: Thank you, and I'd like to say good afternoon again. Before stated, my name is Ben Burkhead. I'm president of National farm, Family Farm Coalition, which is a coalition of 35 family farm organizations across the United States. I am a fourth generation farmer from South Mississippi. I've currently been farming on the same farm in my, my family for 125 years. And I'm a... I've been farming myself, I know I don't look like it, for, for 45 years. <laughs> it just so happened that two corporations that were mentioned, U.S. Food Service and Cisco Food Service, I grow for U.S. Food Service. I was fortunate enough to testify to the Federal Trade Commission as why that merger shouldn't take place. And I think to this date, it hasn't taken place, so my testimony must have did a little good. (laughs) Because I grow it, uh, as as I say, I grow vegetables. I grow soybeans, I have 100 acres of old-growth timber, but my main crops that I make my living off of are vegetables. Not only do you have three or four corporations controlling the marketplace, uh, most of the seeds we grow now come basically from one country, Monsanto. Cenex is a vegetable seed company, which in the last couple of years was bought by Monsanto. So if I'm growing for U.S. Food Service or Kroger's or A-Hole or any of the supermarket with anything, basically tell me which seed to grow. So if I'm going to grow eggplants, I've got to grow a certain variety of eggplants. I'm going to go yellow squash or neck squash. i got to grow what they said they want to buy. Even in the case of watermelon, only the watermelon you see in the store now, the striped watermelon. You know, wonder why all of them look the same? About this size, and they got stripes. There's several different varieties of watermelon that can be grown, but that's the only one that corporate America want to buy. So, at the National Family Farm Coalition, I'm filling in for our executive director, Ms. Kathy Ozer. She was unable to be here; she's recovering from cancer. And she's doing very well. What well, we have done, we mount campaigns. Uh, three or four months, well, about five months ago, we marched in front of the Chicago Board of Trade protesting the price of cheese, where the price is set inside the Board of Trade. Many of our farmers are dairy farmers. So at those protests, and I've been fortunate to travel from Mississippi to Chicago to be with them, we dress up in cow soups, just like dairy cow. <laughs> <laughs> and we march around because the price is set by cooperative America and the, many dairy farmers are going out of business especially the family farm family size dairy farm 100-200 cows now you have the me- mega dairies which 3 or 4 thousand head of cow, and they're using cows uh, long as the cow producing milk good get not able to produce milk slaughter get another inhumane treatment of the animals. Also, we mentioned about the chicken farm. Again, farmers are, and I'm speaking here today on behalf of the farmers, are in a unique situation. If you contract poultry grow with Tyson or uh, Sanderson Farm or uh, Purdue, you're at the mercy of the company. You borrow a million, million, $2 million to build chicken house and you would, basically you share cropping called Tyson on the chick from, we said from the egg to the plate. That chicken is controlled by Tyson. So not only are these cooperations controlling the marketplace, they are manipulating the supply. So they have a quote of so many chickens they want at a certain time. Uh, and But you know, Mother Nature can always uh, mess up things. Look at the price of eggs now. Because they had to slaughter 45 million chickens because of the, the, the bird flu. So we, we advocate on behalf of family farmers uh, producing animals, crops, in a more sustainable way. It's a struggle sometimes. On my farm, I, I wanted the last three years. I always I wanted to grow only non-GMO soybean. So if I'm planting 200 acres of soybeans, I need, that mean that means I need 150 bags of seeds. I could only find 12 bags. <laughs> non-GMO seeds between Louisiana and Mississippi. (laughs) Now, all the farmers that grow non-GMO seeds in the South have basically been put out of business, because Monsanto said they've been cleaning some of their seeds. But I I did locate a grower that will grow 150 bags for me for next season. So you see how the control is, is being manipulated. And I end with, the, with this statement. I think I'm getting close. My 10 minutes. I'm a Southern Baptist, because so I can go on for <laughs> quite a while. <laughs> uh, farmers in my area, we grow soybeans, we grow corn, we grow wheat. There's no more local elevators. So you got Continental Grain, Bungie Corporation, Archer Daniel Mill, got about four buyers for for grain. So small farmers, farmers that are not able to load an 18 wheeler load, a tandem truck at one time, is basically out of business. Cause you got to load a a truck with enough grain to get it at least a hundred and fifty to two hundred miles to the elevator. So again, corporate control is controlling the system where family farmers, and I say, I consider myself an a ag in the miller farmer. I'm not a small farmer, but I'm definitely not a large farmer. It's like the Miller class in, in America, I'm in the miller. Now I got a decision to make in order to stay in business. I said for my daughter to stay in business, she's trying to retire me. Either I'm, I'm going to get smaller, or else I could have to continue on that roller coaster. Again, adding more acres, using more chemical, using more GMO seeds in order to stay in business. So we need to re- redesign the food system as we see it. A more just food system for the workers in the, in the processing plant, for the farmers, for the consumers, for those working in... in, in Darting industry and in the restaurant. And the only way that's going to work is that all of us play a part from the farmer to the workers to the consumer. Thank you, y'all.
1: Thanks, Ben. All right, so our quiz ball question before I introduce Saru is, so raise your hand if you know the answer. This might be a hard one. Let's see. What is the largest full-service restaurant corporation in the world? Yes. Oh, okay. You want a magnet? This is your prize. All right. Darden. So Saru's going to tell you what Darden is, and how Rock United's Dignity at Darden campaign is connected to um, Rocky United's campaign uh, and coalition to stop the other NRA. So this is a national coalition, multi-sector um, coalition that is taking on one of the most powerful lobbies on Capitol Hill. So, sorry, do you, it's up to you wherever you want to. Uh, all right,
3: <laughs> I'll stand up, I'm short. Can you hear me? Okay, great. All right, I'm going to talk quick, and you're going to tell me when I'm at one minute. All right, so uh, my name is Saru. On 9-11, there was a restaurant at the top of the World Trade Center, Tower One. On that morning, 73 workers died in the restaurant. They either jumped to their deaths or they were incinerated, literally evaporated, because the plane hit below them. They were actually above the plane and above the clouds. And um, they either jumped to their deaths from the 106th and 107th floors, or uh, if they stayed in the restaurant, they were evaporated within minutes. So after the tragedy, I was called by the union that was inside that restaurant, which is very, very unique, because less than 0.001% of all restaurant workers in the United States are unionized. Um, And they called me, and they called one of the head waiters from Windows on the World, the restaurant at the top of the World Trade Center, and asked us to start a little relief organization in the aftermath of the tragedy. And what started is a little relief center that we called ROC. The Restaurant Opportunity Center has grown into a national organization of workers, employers, and consumers. We've got now close to 20,000 worker members in 15 states across the country. We have 160 employer members. These are restaurant owners who've worked with us to fight for better wages and working conditions in this industry. And several thousand consumer members. And we've won some things We've we've run about 20 campaigns against high-profile restaurant companies recouping about $10 million in stolen tips and wages and winning paid sick days and benefits and raises and promotions for thousands of workers in those companies. Um, we've opened our own restaurants called Colors. Uh, these are movement-owned restaurants, one in New York, one in Detroit. We're opening one here in Oakland. In them, we've trained thousands of workers to move up the ladder to livable wage jobs. We've done a ton of research. I teach at UC Berkeley. We worked with academics around the country to put out about 30 reports and about three books on the industry, all of which has been the basis for local, state, and federal policy work. We've raised the minimum wage in a number of states. We've passed paid sick days. We won a bill in Philadelphia, making it illegal to deduct credit card processing fees from workers' tips, which, by the way, is legal in most of the country so leave your tips in cash. We've won a lot of things, Um, but uh, thank you. (laughs) Um, But uh, the reason we've grown so fast and had to do so much out of necessity over the last now 15 years, really is the explosion in this industry, which is the second largest and absolute fastest growing sector of the U.S. economy. Joanne can tell you there's close to 20 million workers in the entire food system, so one in five private sector workers works in food. Well, more than half of food system workers are restaurant workers. There are 11 million workers in the restaurant industry. One in 12 Americans works in the restaurant industry, and one in two Americans has worked in this industry in their lifetime. How many people here have worked in this industry? My point exactly. (laughs) Um, So, largest industry, fastest growing, but the absolute lowest paying employer in the United States. So every year the U.S. Department of Labor puts out a list of the 10 lowest paying jobs and every year seven of the 10 are restaurant jobs and the two absolute lowest paying jobs every year, lower than farm workers and every other type of job you might think of as a low paying job, are the people who touch and serve our food. And by the way, of those seven lowest-paying jobs that are restaurant jobs, only one is a fast-food occupation. Six of the seven lowest-paying jobs in America are full-service restaurant occupations, including waitresses and bartenders and barbacks and runners. So how is it that you've got one of the largest and fastest-growing industries in America proliferating the absolute lowest-paying jobs in this country, which I always like to say to food system activists— You know, we've got to remember as food system activists that the food system is not a bad employer. They are the absolute worst employer in the United States and probably in the world. It is arguable that they are the absolute worst in the world. So how is it that you've got one of the largest and fastest growing sectors of our economy, the restaurant industry, proliferating the absolute lowest paying jobs? All of our research and analysis, years and years of studies show that all of it can be sourced back to the money, power, and influence of a trade lobby um, that is called the National Restaurant Association that's led by the Fortune 500 chains. Most people haven't even heard of it. We call it the other NRA. And until uh, uh, this past year, actually, I always thought of the NRA uh, that its power dated back 20 or 30 years, maybe 40 years, when in fact, turns out, its power dates back 150 years to the emancipation of the slaves. So... Tipping, for example, did not originate in the United States. It originated in the feudal homes of Europe. If you've seen Downton Abbey, think about Downton Abbey. So it was a feudal system, right? There were servants who tipped the servants as a, as a form of patronage. And rich Americans in the 1850s and 1860s would travel to Europe and come back to the states and tip to show off that they knew the rules of Europe. And there was a massive resistance to this, massive rejection, massive tipping, anti-tipping movement so large that five states actually passed bans on tipping. And the movement was so big and so successful it spread to Europe and succeeded in Europe, which is why there's very little tipping in Europe. In the states, we went the opposite direction because two industries squashed that anti-tipping movement. The restaurant industry, the restaurant association, and the Pullman Train Company, both of which wanted the right to hire newly freed slaves and not pay them anything and let them live on customer tips. And that idea that a worker could be paid on tips alone and not get a wage from their employer was codified into the very first minimum wage bill in 1938 as part of the New Deal under FDR, which said you have the right to the minimum wage either through wages or through tips. And we've gone from $0 an hour for tipped workers in 1938 to a whopping $2.13 an hour, the current federal minimum wage for tipped workers in the United States. $2 over 150 years. And over that time period, the other NRA, this extraordinary trade lobby made up of Darden and Disney and McDonald's and Yum! Brands and so many others has made exactly the same argument. They've said, we have no, there's no reason we should pay our own workers. Customers should pay our own workers' wages for us through tips. And that should happen because these are white guys working in fancy steakhouses, making $100,000 a year or $25 an hour. They're doing quite well. There's no reason for us to have to pay them a wage. Customers pay their wages for us. When in fact, 70% of tipped workers in America are women, women who work at IHOP and Applebee's and Denny's, Women who a lot of food system activists don't see because we don't eat in those restaurants, but that's where the majority of tipped workers work. They earn about $8.50 an hour, including tips. They suffer from three times the poverty rate of the rest of the U.S. workforce. They use food stamps at double the rate. And they suffer from the absolute worst sexual harassment of any industry in the United States because when you're a woman who earns two bucks an hour as you do in New Mexico or Washington, D.C., or so many other 43 states in the United States... Your wage is so low, it goes entirely to taxes. You get a pay stub that says, this is not a paycheck. It says zero. And you live completely off your tips. And when you live completely off your tips, you have to tolerate whatever a customer might do to you, however they may touch you, or treat you, or talk to you, because the customer is always right, because the customer pays your bills, not your employer. That's why 7% of American women work in restaurants, but 37% of all sexual harassment complaints to the EEOC come from the restaurant industry. It's the single largest source of sexual harassment complaints of any industry in the United States. So how is it that this has happened? It's happened because of the extraordinary power of a trade lobby called the other NRA, which always ends up, by the way, on the Power 25 list, the top 25 most powerful lobbying groups in the United States. It goes from maybe number 10 to number 15. It ranges. Um, But it's always in the top 25 so, uh, about two years ago, we or two or three years ago, we launched a campaign called One Fair Wage that was all about eliminating the lower wage for tipped workers. We had to fight with our own allies and friends in the labor movement, who for 100 years had struck deals with legislators in the Restaurant Association, essentially saying, We will let the minimum wage go up for all other workers as long as the tipped workers are left out. At the federal level, that happened at the last time, 1996, when Herman Cain, remember Herman Cain? when Herman Cain was the head of the other NRA, uh, and he struck this deal with Congress, which basically said, we'll allow the minimum wage to go up as long as the minimum wage for tipped workers stays frozen forever, and that's why it's been stuck at $2.13 an hour for a quarter century, for 25 years. So, we launched this campaign. First, we had to fight with our own allies. We finally experienced some momentum last year when the labor movement actually passed the first resolution in US history In support of full elimination of the lower wage for tipped workers. We got some bills introduced in various states to eliminate the lower wage for tipped workers, but we realized it had to be about attacking the corporations. The NRA had actually been attacking us for many years. They set up a fully staffed organization called Rock Exposed. And if you haven't heard of Richard Berman, please ask me later who Richard Berman is. You should know as food system activists. He's the major henchman for big food corporations. He came after us, set up a fully staffed organization, followed me around the country, had three full-page ads taken out in the Wall Street Journal and USA Today and two congressional investigations into Rock and to me, and we decided it was time to expose them. So A couple of years ago, we pulled together a coalition called the Stop the Other NRA Coalition. We already had a campaign against Darden. We now have about 8,000 workers who stood up against the company in a number of cities across the country. We have one uh, shareholder resolution winning proxy access. We've done a number of things to that company, but we realized we needed to expose the NRA. So we pulled together the Stop the Other NRA Coalition with all of our friends on the stage. Uh, And the first thing that we did was we pulled out a full-page ad in the New York Times calling on Congress to stop listening to the other NRA and listen to the people. And then in April, we decided to take it a step further. We actually went to D.C. on the NRA's annual lobbying day in uh, where they take four or five hundred corporate lobbyists from McDonald's and Darden and Applebee's and Olive Garden and they visit every legislator on Capitol Hill. This year, we actually. Uh, Blocked four intersections, stopping them from getting to Capitol Hill. We set up restaurants in the middle of the street and we blocked four intersections. While we sent our alternative National Restaurant Association, comprised of good employers, to Capitol Hill, testifying there, and they were so, Congress was so pleased to hear a different voice of restaurant owners, they invited them back the next month. Well, that led directly after that to us convincing Chipotle to actually leave the National Restaurant Association and then to agree to provide paid sick days, paid family leave, and tuition reimbursements to all their 300,000 workers nationwide. We also then followed the NRA to their annual trade show in, in Chicago, took over the their NRA booth with workers, restaurant workers, demanding to meet with the head of the NRA, demanding to meet with the head of Darden. we infiltrated their shareholder meeting in September in Orlando, where Darden is headquartered, as well as Disney, one of the key leaders of the NRA. And the fight continues. Um, but. We've had so much momentum in the last week in particular, I just have to share with you even though I know I'm out of time, which is that as a result of attacking the corporations and simultaneously lifting up the folks that are doing it right, we actually this week managed to actually split the industry. Because industry leaders this past week, Tom Calicchio, starved Top Chef, and Danny Meyer, one of the leading restaurant owners who's been a partner of ours for the last 10 years, after hearing me speak, decided to walk away from tipping altogether. And that led to uh, major stories in the New York Times. It led to the New York Times publishing an op-ed from me on the history of tipping. And this morning, it led to the New York Times editorial board coming out in support of full elimination of the lower wage for tipped workers, (laughs) which is great. We have a very long way to go to fight these corporations. The NRA will continue to fight to hold on to the power to pay these workers 213. But we have come so far, extraordinarily far, in a short period of time. And it has been all about not being afraid to take on the biggest and most powerful and most organized trade lobby, in my opinion, in the world when it comes to workers. Even when they attacked us and put my kids' pictures on their website. It didn't matter. It didn't stop us. It fueled us to keep going, and we were winning. So I'll stop.
1: So I know after hearing Ben and Sara, you all want to know how you can stay up to date on their work, and you're, you'll hear from Nick too. So um, I'm going to pass the sign-up sheet, so if you're interested, you can put your info on here. Thank you. John. Okay. So. Nick's going to get set up. Um, do you want me to ask a question, or do you have the slide on it? You want? OK, there. OK, so this is our next and final quiz bowl question. For those who came in late, if you get the question, if you know the answer, raise your hand, and you'll get a magnet for free. So the question is, which has the National Restaurant Association not opposed? A, voluntary guidelines on marketing junk food to kids, B, menu labeling, C, smoke-free spaces, D, the Paycheck Fairness Act, I see your hand, Um, giving women tools to fight pay discrimination, or E, space for restaurant workers to nurse. So you have... voluntary
2: guidelines.
1: Nope, that's not the answer. Okay. Nope, that's not right either. (laughs) I thought that too, but... So anyone else have a guess? Space. Who said... Yes, you're right. The, so the other NRA has not opposed smoke-free spaces. They have opposed everything else. Here you go. Thank you. So um, so yes, the NRA in big tobacco uh, cozied up in the late 1970s and early 1980s. And so after receiving millions of dollars in grant money from Philip Morris, the NRA lobbied on behalf of the tobacco industry to oppose smoking bans and other tobacco control policies. So so the NRA, I mean, you heard a lot from Saru about how the NRA has fought against equal wages for for all workers, for restaurant workers. But its influence is pervasive and damaging across the whole food system. And so you'll hear hear from Nick. Nick's going to talk about some of the other players in the NRA, for example, McDonald's. Um, So welcome, Nick, from the Corporate Accountability International.
0: Hi, everybody. So if you didn't already hate the NRA, you're going to hate them even more after this. Um, so I'm going to walk a little bit, um, I'm going to walk you through, if this works here. Um, over the next few minutes, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about, okay, what, el- what else is the NRA involved with here? Why should we hate them and why should we be concerned about the National Restaurant Association? Also, who is behind the NRA? Um, this is ostensibly a front group for very large corporations who use the NRA to play bad cop to their good. Um, So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about that as well, as well as what we can do um, to key up small group sessions where we're actually rolling up our sleeves and talking about strategy on something that's happening today that involves both front groups and large corporations in influencing how we eat and live. So a few of the other things that you'll be interested to know about the NRA. Saru mentioned Rick Berman, um, also known as Dr. Evil, um, the National Restaurant Association has advocated for a range of unsustainable practices. These are just a few that I'll mention. They've opposed voluntary industry initiatives to raise pigs more humanely. They've opposed initiatives by the Humane Society um, to improve livestock treatment. And they've even defended the level of mercury in fish. Saru spoken to any number of things um, that the Primarily, the NRA is associated with the exploitation of workers. These are just a few things, from uh, fairness in the workplace in terms of pay, um, to tip minimum wage, to opposing minimum wage laws, carte blanche. Um, something we work on, I'll, I'll speak about in a minute, is marketing the kids in particular. The NRA has effectively blocked even voluntary regulations controlling marketing to kids, limiting marketing to kids, an intervention that the Institutes of Medicine and a range of authoritative bodies tell us could protect the health of a generation. Uh, We're in the middle of a national health crisis, and you have the Restaurant Association blocking any controls on the tremendous volume, billions of dollars going into kid-targeted marketing every year. Menu labeling, I'm sure everybody's seen um, steps forward in terms of menu labeling, especially in the Bay Area. National Restaurant Association for decades, largely at McDonald's behest, has prevented progress on menu labeling so that consumers can make informed choices about what they eat. Um, When there was actually progress at the local and state level, the NRA all of a sudden changed its tune on federal menu labeling and decided to advocate for a law that would in effect preempt stronger local menu labeling laws. So what what does this all add up to? What does the National Restaurant Association's influence add up to? And the work it's doing on behalf of the Dardens, of McDonald's, of Yum Brands. We're facing a national health crisis at which this uh, front group and trade association is at its heart. Poverty wages, inhumane treatment of farm animals, you name it. There's abuses from seed to plate where we can put our finger on the NRA. So how do we stop these entrenched interests? You heard the history of the NRA from SARU. We're also talking about the corporations behind the NRA. These are multi-billion dollar corporations, specifically Darden and McDonald's, who are largely the might and muscle behind the policy agenda of the NRA. So what, what can we do um, as advocates, as uh, community food advocates? First thing I'm going to mention is pulling back the veil. The last thing the NRA um, wants to do is not serve its corporate benefactors. McDonald's and Darden don't want their names in the media uh, opposing basic children's health protections. So one example of how you pull back the veil, a few years ago, Uh, Corporate Accountability International members and allies came together around a law in San Francisco to improve the healthfulness of Happy Meals. Pretty innocuous um, policy. When the NRA was impotent to prevent the policy, McDonald's was forced to fly in its executives to town hall meetings and prop up franchisees on local media and in effect become the story. Not very good, this last thing that a McDonald's wants. So associating the NRA with the, its corporate benefactors, extremely powerful in de- debunking the fact that McDonald's and some of these other corporations stand on the right side of the line. Second, you peel off the big corporate members. Um, Saru mentioned probably the best example of this with uh, the NRA, peeling off the Chipotles, you know, more progressive, even if nominally um, fast food corporations, um, to, to make sure that there's a wedge within the industry. Another example of this is thinking also about CVS um, recently quit the Chamber of Commerce over the Chamber of Commerce's lobbying around tobacco control laws internationally, basically trying to undermine them, a very effective tactic. Disrupt their activities. This is a photo of the lobby day that Sara was talking about. So directly interfering in their policy advocacy. Very exciting stuff. Um, Engaging in shareholder advocacy. So one thing that um, our organization has done with uh, Food Chain Workers Alliance and others is we've gone to McDonald's shareholder meeting, proposed a resolution saying Your stated values and beliefs say you care about the environment, you care about workers, yet you're subsidizing the National Restaurant Association to undermine all of these proactive values that you say are inherent in your corporate culture. This is a liability. And so by doing so, we're able to generate thousands of media hits and create a real liability for the audience that these corporations care about most, which is their shareholders. So these are some photos from the um, shareholder meeting. Um, And you won't be able to read this. Um, I'm happy to share this presentation with folks who are interested. But this is uh, a statement from Joanne's colleague, Jose, uh, delivered on the floor of the McDonald's shareholder meeting, calling out executives for the disconsonance between political giving by the corporation um, with its stated values as a corporation. The final thing is, um, and Saru alluded to this, is... Um, waging corporate campaigns, so targeting specifically the corporations behind the National Restaurant Association by using key issues to leverage their policies from seed to plate. For us um, at Corporate Accountability International, McDonald's is, in, is really the, in the bullseye of so much of what is happening by way of abuse from seed to plate, Um, and knowing that our organizations have much more limited resources than these seven billion plus uh, corporations, we've had to think about, well, what is at the center of the business model for these corporations? With McDonald's, who is the largest fast food corporation globally, it's marketing the kids. Nothing has distinguished them more within the industry than it's marketing, and specifically the kids. Just like Coca-Cola, this is a marketing corporation. You look at I mean, what is the product they're selling, and where would that be without a fancy wrapper? So you look at, and you know, Darden has its own examples in terms of how do you target these corporations so you can compel change. In the case of McDonald's over the years, we have looked at if we can leverage, if we can call out their abuses of mar- with regard to marketing, we can leverage everything from their purchasing practices to overuse of pesticides and more. This is the number one purchaser of some of America's top staples, like pork and apples. So what we've seen over the years in waging a corporate campaign with McDonald's in particular um, is we've leveraged their visibility in terms of political influence. Um, We've called on them to reduce marketing. We've gotten Michelle Obama and a range of other big names to advocate against marketing to kids, marketing in schools. But we've also created a space for a lot of progress, whether it's cage-free eggs or some of the progress McDonald's is now making. On we used to, you know, and still do put um, pigs in gestation crates where they can barely move. We've helped the Humane Society and others have the space to, in fact, reform how uh, animals are treated in this country, um, year by year, shareholder meeting by shareholder meeting. The other key thing about these corporate campaigns is engaging new constituencies. The food movement and the movement for food justice cannot be big enough, and we need to expand the tent. We also need to make sure that there is a history in movements of siloing. And certainly within the food movement, where we've looked at the food nutrition is being divorced from food security, food safety, and food justice. So a big piece of our work on Value of the Meal has been to first engage health professionals, educators. Just this week, the largest teachers unions in the country called out McDonald's for using, exploiting teachers to promote their product in schools. But, using, but talking to these new constituencies about reducing marketing to kids and then furthering the conversation. So they're thinking, actually, we need to be thinking about the whole supply chain. If we're talking about marketing to kids, we should also be talking about how that food is sourced. Um, and what is being served in these restaurants as well, how workers are being paid. So i want to leave folks on a note because we're going to small groups and talk a little bit about this. Um, As you can see, there is a tremendous amount of possibility in terms of the tactics that we can employ, the creativity we can employ in challenging these interests and the front groups and trade associations that do their bidding. so I want to challenge you and small groups to think, what does this look like, especially on the local level? How can we exert power beyond policy um, with shareholders? How can we build new constituencies to bring about true food justice from seed to plate? Um, so thank you again for being here, engaging this important topic. I look forward to working with you guys in the small groups from here. So we
1: we're gonna have we have a little time right now for questions before we move into small groups. Um, I do want to share also that this past week, we just released a new um, online petition. It's housed with Friends of the Earth and carries here from Friends of the Earth, um, asking Darden to uh, make its menu greener. So to provide smaller portions, to um, to buy food that is sustainably produced uh, from workers who are receiving dignified wages. Um, that you know, more humane treatment of animals uh, in its supply chain. So go to friendsoftheearth.org right, and sign that petition. So, yes, questions? So.
4: I've got a question. It's been in the news lately as a huge victory for food rights about a McDonald's going to cage-free eggs. And from what I read in the Michael Pollan book about eight years ago, that is just such a false flag. I mean, I think what, if I recall it correctly, cage-free eggs meant that from ages six, six weeks to eight weeks, there was a little door that was about a foot you know, put squares that the chickens would have the option to go out, but basically their living conditions aren't really any different than how they are
0: now. Can you address that? Yeah, I, I think there's a, a couple of things, and that's a really important point is, you know, when we're working on challenging corporations to shift their practices, their default is oftentimes, you know, they will try to extend the timeline. They will try to do it on a voluntary basis without regulation and so this is a, a key point we're improving um, you know free-range cage-free these are loosey-goosey definitions sometimes and so we have to be careful about the victories we're we're claiming in this space and frankly there are our organizations who will claim victory where we still have work to do um, eggs is one of those things with McDonald's where we have an indefinite timeline on when they're going to do this. And so it's even loose, more loose than it is in Europe in terms of commitments they've made. So I think that's an important thing as we're thinking about building power is setting very finite limits on what we're asking, making sure they meet those commitments on timelines, publicizing them, and then securing regulations that reinforce these commitments because a commitment by a corporation is by no means the end game. And we have to be careful about the, um, the categories we're lumping things in. You know, free, cage-free, free-range, all-natural. These are, there's not necessarily like an FDA or an EPA mandate around what that means. Um, and that's something we need to fight for as well.
4: Yeah, but it sounds to me like this is just a feel-good label. I mean, Michael Pollan basically said, don't waste your money on cage-free eggs. Yep. Because yeah. you're not getting anything that's benefiting the chickens or the eggs or yourself. It's like a, it's a specious benefit. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely right. Yeah. Back there, go ahead.
4: To be
1: honest,
5: I, you know, when I shop for food now, I have to make sure I understand what they've been fed because anything that's been fed genetically, you know, soy or corn-based beef is genetically modified. So, you know, I guess this is a comment. I mean, <laughs> this is a big issue. I mean, we're talking about, you know, children and pregnant moms getting life to save into their belly. This is not good, Roundup ready. You know, I, I mean,
4: yeah.
5: you know, so, I mean, everything's linked to everything else, and we've just got to stop industrial farming and soy and corn. And, and I know my McDonald's could do, could be, a, a, in
0: that but I'm just looking you just dream or something or what? You well know? I think one note on this, and I'm sure the rest of the panel has some thinking, but NRA has been a force on GMO labeling for one um, over the last few years. And so that's, it's yet another reason to be thinking about this group and the influence it has and working to reduce it.
2: several attempts to get GMO labeling on food products but that's something Congress is not willing to do so all I can suggest is you buy your produce and eggs from farmers market from, from people that you know that's actually actually growing and in the case on the cage free eggs is absolutely not they're farmers that grow contract eggs in my area they, they said they had to become cage-free, and what they were calling cage-free would make the cage just a little bit bigger. That's all. Can talk
4: a little bit about the legality
2: of seed sharing and also seed Uh Yes, it's, it's several different organizations in, in the state that have uh, seed sharing and uh, heirloom varieties that they go from one place to to the, from one farmer to another. I just was given some some white okra seeds over at another meeting today that I'm gonna try back in, in Mississippi. But in the case of large acreage, the main crops of sugar beets, wheat, corn, soybeans, rye, 99, 95 percent GMO and what they have done is is basically uh, the growers of the seed stock of non-gmo seeds have been basically put out of business so you have to rebuild that whole industry again that infrastructure where you can have the seeds clean and processed for years i saved all my soybean seeds and i took them to my local Cleaner, he cleaned them, rebated them. I took them back to to my farm. So, but none of those places exist now. Very few, if any, because most of them have been prosecuted by Monsanto and Pioneer and DKF seeds because they said they was, you know, using keeping their seeds. So that industry has to be rebuilt, but it it can be done.
1: All right, we're going to take one more question, and then we're going to break into small groups. And there'll be time after if you want to talk to folks. So go ahead. Has
2: anybody thought of uh, looking at antitrust law in some of these industries? Because that's not a really free market.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Were you involved yeah. in <laughs> Yeah, I mean,
3: if you read uh, Winona's book, you know, Winona Howder, director of Food and Water Watch, um, it's all about antitrust, and I, they have worked some on antitrust. Um, it's it's an incredibly weak, I mean, antitrust right now, the state of antitrust law is just decimated. It's incredibly weak. Um, mergers happen constantly with absolutely no repercussion, no real oversight. There have been attempts to get more oversight with very little success. So um, I mean, it kind of circles back. It's sort of like a catch-22, right? You. You might think antitrust is a solution, but as long as corporations still control our democracy, every aspect of our democracy, even antitrust, the very antitrust regulation and process is controlled by corporate power. So until we actually directly attack corporate corporations and their power, we are never going to actually win. And I guess I'll just say this before we go to small groups, which is that you know I think um, for too long a lot of the food what people consider the food movement food activism has been focused on consumer choice what, what how should we look how should we shop differently you know look for labels buy differently or it's been about building up alternatives maybe i understand because people feel some amount of despair and hopelessness about going up against corporations but i hope what we're providing you here and in small groups is the attempt to convince you that every single person in this country has the power, has the ability, not just to shop differently, not just the power of your dollar, not just to buy something different to put in your mouth. You actually have citizen power, you have the power to organize, you have the power to mobilize, you have the power in collectivity with others to actually stop corporations and change corporate behavior, to, to reduce the amount of corporate power over our democracy. And, and unless and until the food movement can, you know, right now it feels like 90% of the activity is around consumer choice and alternatives and 10% is around targeting corporations. But the actual power in our country is exactly the opposite. 99% is in corporate power and maybe 1% is in alternatives and consumer choice. So we have to change our behavior to reflect the structure and power system in our country so that much more of our activism is focused on those that are actually controlling our system, which is the corporations. So I I hope, you know, we're putting out a book, um, myself and a colleague at Berkeley, and CII is a part of it, and and Joanne's a part of it, really trying to provide people in the food movement with concrete examples of how you can take on Corporations and win. And that's what we need so much more of because I just, you know, we can't, we can no longer afford to feel this sort of despair or hopelessness. It's just too big, it's just too powerful, it's just too whatever. We just have to do it. We don't have a choice.
1: So. That was a wonderful lead-in to our small groups. Um, we're gonna divide up into four groups, and each group is gonna get the same scenario in which you are organizing to stop Tyson, the largest processor of poultry in the US, I think the world, right? Yeah. Um, and so we. You're organizing to stop Tyson from getting a $50 million five-year contract with the LA Unified School District. And this is based on something real that's happening right now that the Food Chain Workers Alliance is working on. So um, we have a a handout about the scenario. You're going to have 20 minutes to come up with a plan. And then we'll come back and ask folks to share some of the highlights. And Please take notes. So, in your groups, if someone can volunteer to take notes and someone to be a presenter, and I really and I hope you'll share your notes with me after, because um, I'll share afterwards like what's really happening and where we're at in the campaign. But I'm looking forward to your ideas because I think you could really help us. So, um, if we can count off by fours, and then one of us will sit in with you and help shepherd the group along. So, going to go ahead. Start one, two,
0: three, four, okay. one, two. We take one. One, two, three, four, one. Joe, I can take the back three, of the round. Four, four, uh, yeah. four, Yeah, we can have Joe if you need Sorry. to get here. No worries.
1: Yeah. We're just a little bit too soon to talk about the book. Back here. Four. Okay, so ones, if you can go in the back right corner with Joe. Joe's going to be your um, facilitator. Twos go with Nick in the back left. Threes with with Ben up here in the front left, and fours with me up here in the front right. Okay. Well, I'm glad you all really got into it, but we want to respect your time. We have a little bit of time before six. So, do we have a volunteer from one of the groups to share your tactics for getting the four votes you need on the school board to oppose the Tyson contract? Any one of the groups want to share some of your tactics? Come on up to the microphone so it can be recorded. Come on up. Yep. Just share a few of the highlights. Yeah, just because we only have about five minutes. Okay, so our group decided
4: that we were going to, um, there's seven board members. We figured there was probably a plurality would decide this. So um, we decided we were gonna target the four Four of, there's one guy, I didn't bring my paper, I think it's swimmer Sh- or something, who's the board president, so we, he's already pro, he's already in our camp. So we were gonna target four more of the, 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 can I borrow your sheet? We were gonna target, um, let's see, the ones who were sort of neutral and we weren't gonna waste our time with um, Gabe McKenzie and Madeline Rogers who's voting for cheap over quality, kind of uniformly. So in terms of that's who we're going to target. Um, We also decided that we were going to look into this app that we heard about this morning called Lumio as an organizing way to engage people for activists. And um, we had talked about trying to get to the individuals through the ones who have children, through their concern for their own children's well-being, what would they like to... um, have for them um, we also talked about exposing the front groups that that Tyson was behind this whatever Americans for Food Safety or whatever the name of that group was um, and then we had another idea because it, while we were there we went on to the LAUSD website the school board members and they each represent a certain district and they and so what we were thinking about doing was looking up the Whole Foods or the natural foods um, stores that are in each of those districts and doing a campaign um, targeting those parents. Like, you know how people are always trying to get you to sign up outside Whole Foods? Um, So if we could get, you know, probably in a day or two of activism, standing outside the, each of these districts, so we could target the council members for those districts. And they all have their own websites listed on the LAUSD website. So if we get, you know, whatever it is, one one letter or one... It always represents, like, 10,000 constituents, if you can actually get people involved. So we were going to try to specifically target the the districts in L.A., where the health where the healthy food stores and therefore the healthier consumers are to influence, to send letters and to even
1: come to the hearing. Great, cool. Any of the other groups have something different that you wanna share? Come on up to the mic. So uh, we also
5: uh, were targeting, um, you know, eliminating the obvious uh, folks on the board that were kind of in bed with Tyson, you know, due to re-election funds and all that. And we also spoke of Lumio. Um, We started talking about, um, you know, really, uh, we also spoke about revealing who is this front group, you know, and through the social media and such. Um, But we we had the idea that um, we'd get teachers to inform kids to then inform parents and maybe even start some green teams uh, with the various school districts and have, um, you know, maybe a half a dozen children from each of these green teams come together as a large group to present at the hearing when you get mobilized children who are informed and articulate, um, you, 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 as, a, as an adult, it's very hard to vote against that. Uh, I know this because in my town, uh, we had a green team, and uh, they, not, not one town, uh, town meeting, not one member could vote against them when they wanted to eliminate plastic bags from the grocery store. So, yeah. Um, the other thing um, you know this violation we should just get the times to cover the fact that you know the schools considering a violation of this uh, good food policy you know hey it was already voted in 2012 so it's it's a good food purchasing policy and it was it's done you know the, the people have spoken so get the get the times involved um, I know from my work in uh, activism in my little town uh, north of Boston, uh, when my kids were little, I fought against pesticides. And, um, you know, it was very nerve-wracking, even in a small town. So um, we had, uh, you know, pesticide groups in Boston um, with volunteers who would come up and help. And so I I had the idea that maybe if any of these organizations had, you know, sort of interns uh, volunteers, just one person to kind of come and you know hold our hands, lead us, keep us on track um, uh, so that we don't get intimidated by these big corporations or or government you know like you know sort of that sort of thing um, so I, I suggested that um, and uh, so you know, yeah just social media um you know, when we use Lumi, you know, maybe in our small groups, each of us has a passion. Some of us for animal welfare, some of us for health and nutrition. I'm a holistic nurse, so I'd like go online with all these links about GMO food. You know, like animal welfare could have these awful pictures. You know, so a lot can be done in on uh, Lumio um, to raise awareness.
1: Well, it's six o'clock, so this is a question if folks want to hear from the other groups or willing to wait, and then I'll share what we're doing and we'll wrap up. Or, okay, so the other group, everyone, I would love to have the notes from all the groups um, when we're done. So, Food Chain Workers Alliance, we helped to develop the policy, the good food purchasing policy, with the LA Food Policy Council and got the school district and the city to, to adopt it. Um, so, what happened is that five days before the actual vote, is when the uh, procurement department of the school district made it public that they were recommending the chicken contracts to be awarded to Tyson and to Pilgrim's Pride. It's only five days, we had five days. So we, um, because of relationships we already had, we were able to get local, state, and national organizations over 20 to send letters to all the school board members. We'd had a few meetings beforehand to express concerns about Tyson because Tyson has the current contract. Uh, chicken contract with LAUSD so we were sure of three votes and but we decided we needed to send letters to everyone we were able to meet with um, of two of the school board members before the vote we did a call-in day the day before the vote so people around the country asked them to call all the school school board members tweet to them so that night before the the vote we found out the superintendent decided to postpone the vote on the contract for another month. And I was told that this had never happened before. (laughs) I mean, because it's like multi-million dollar contracts. And now what's happened? So the vote was supposed to happen this past week on October 13th. Um, A couple days before, we heard, we found out that the superintendent decided to they're going to restart the whole procurement process. So they're going to do a new chicken procurement process. They're not moving forward with Tyson and Pilgrim's Pride at this time. And we're hopeful that the new process won't result in, again, Tyson and Pilgrim's Pride. So we have a temporary victory for now. We're going to keep watch on the process. Uh, what we recommended, that came up in our group, but what's the alternative? So what we have recommended is there are three union distribution companies in Southern California, and we said you should open up this contract so distribution companies can bid. And there are three union <coughs> chicken uh, processing companies in California, two of which have an antibiotic-free line. So we said there are options here, you know, in our state, locally. And so we'll see. Um, we don't know yet the details of the new procurement process, but we're hopeful and we're keeping the pressure on. So, um, so definitely share your notes and. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. If you're interested, we have a comic book about food workers and the uh, connections with like environmental issues, racial justice, and also our magnet. If you want, they're three dollars each. So thank you all. And if someone has a sign-up sheet back there, we're going to collect that. Thank you so much.